Cyborg Memoirs, No New Polity, and the return of non-linear, episodic smut from a disc embodied now. All that's left, Apica Notebook, B5 size, 100 pages, September 12th, 2022. The belief that plastic is the dead. There's a note from the margins. This story is... The thing is to just get up in the middle of the night uh, and uh, wait and um, enjoy the spectacle. And how long is this greater activity going to go go on? Well, I think solar maximum is uh, going to peak out in about 2025 and so that it'll start scaling back. So in, in that period of time, this will continue to be quite a light show. It also has the potential to really cause some difficulties for communication satellites and the power grid. So we should be on guard for that as well. The sun is, uh, is a big player in our solar system, to be sure. And uh, when this solar maximum occurs, it's not just a spectacle, it's a potential harm to some of our systems. So we have to watch out for that. Bye bye bus, I love you bus. Jack, what do the wheels on the bus do? passenger station exploded from orbit. All travel between Earth and the rest of the outer solar system was halted. It was major. The little Musk, Amazon, Alphabet, Joint Venture, whichever one of them was still going at the time, the ones that constructed the megalithic space station crashed the economy when they immediately declared bankruptcy and disbanded, leaving no entity to be held responsible for the cleanup, you see. There's no trash net big enough or fine enough to catch the many billion pieces jettisoning at fatal speeds. There's a new man-made asteroid belt between Earth and Mars. 
Satellites were shredded to pieces. <laughs> GPS systems, earth science monitoring and weapons, defense arrays, telecom relays, all that stuff suffered. You know, there was a chain reaction when that shit exploded. There was a culture shift when the global economy finally came to terms with the fact that there would be no market expansion into outer space. And nothing to aspire to, to distract, to sell. There would be no new colony. It was the start of a global catastrophe that maimed the powers that be. They tried grinding us up. We seized up the gear. They tried subduing us by letting some of us in. Some of us went. They tried sabotaging everything we built. We found other ways. They were freaking the fuck out. There would be no new colony. So, without the satellites, weapons defense arrays, the GPS, we became like seeds to the wind. The state of total control of all illuminated, all-seeing order lost its subduing power. Right after the explosion, <laughs> even the sun and the moon, the weather patterns, we temporarily altered. We did not know how long it would last. I'm speaking of it lightly now. We speak of it lightly now because we lived through it. We are the survivors of that time. The people who would never leave Earth. Not by physical means. The proceeding was created with 100% human content. No, it's my guess she was handy. Does your company manufacture any robots like this? This is not the type of robot Hugh Guide manufactures. That's how we surpassed the conception company and became the best. We're very proud of our philosophy. Are you familiar with it? Ah. Home robotization. Making the robot a part of the family by making it more functional. A humanoid robot simply doesn't work. There has to be a reason and purpose for a robot's existence. When they've achieved that, humans and robots will live in harmony, and that's the belief upon which our company is founded. Have you noticed how many different brands there are running around here on Mars? When Mars terraforming began, history shows that robots were used for environmental testing and labor. Well, I'm amazed we've come this far. 
Me too. In spite of our progress, people are afraid. They misunderstand the potential of robots. Our hope, our dream, isn't shared by everyone yet. Aside from debt stealing negotiations, Capitol Hill was also focused today on what to do about artificial intelligence, the fast-evolving, remarkably powerful computer technologies that many believe could revolutionize and perhaps upend many aspects of our lives. The metaphors used to describe AI at a Senate hearing today reflected this spectrum. Some said this could be as momentous as the Industrial Revolution. Others warned it's akin to developing the atomic the bomb. The child process then does exactly the same thing. Makes a copy of itself, which then makes a copy of itself, which then makes a copy of itself, which then stops after 10 files, otherwise it would fill my hard drive with copies of itself. While the script is not technically a quine in the strict sense, it still self-replicates, and we might say it quines. A computer virus also quines by automatically copying itself from machine to machine, though with much more nefarious purposes. ChatGPT is not a quine. It was not trained on its own source code and thus can't reproduce itself unless we give it its own source code as input, which for a quine is considered cheating. But let's cheat anyway because this takes us to a very interesting place. Rather than just self-replicating, could we give it its own source code and ask it to self-improve? People with, with bad intentions, would we be safe? I don't know. Um, we'd be safer than in a world where people have bad intentions and where the political system is so broken that we can't even decide not to give assault rifles for teenage boys. Um, if you can't solve that problem, how are you going to solve this problem? Well, I mean, I don't know. I was hoping that you would have some thoughts. I, you've, you've, so one, I mean, I, unless we didn't make this clear at the beginning, I mean, you're, you want to speak out about this um, and you feel more comfortable doing that you know, without it sort of having any blowback on, on Google. Yeah. Um, but you're speaking out about it. But in, in, in some sense, talk is cheap if we then don't have, you know, actions or what do we do I mean, when we lots yeah, of people I, this week are listening to you what should we, should we do about it i wish it was like climate change where you could say if you've got half a brain you'd stop burning carbon no. um it's clear what you should do about it it's clear that that's painful but has to be done uh, i don't know of any solution like that to stop these things taking over from us we could be looking at one of the most significant technological innovations in human history. Today, senators and experts weighed in on the gravity and growing risks of rapidly developing AI. We have unprecedented opportunities here, but we are also facing a perfect storm. Sam Altman is the CEO and founder of OpenAI, which is at the forefront of this new technology. But as this technology advances, we understand that people are anxious about how it could change the way we live. We are too. Artificial intelligence gained prominence when his company's product, ChatGPT, was launched in November. It can answer complex questions with human-like responses at startling speeds, but it also makes big mistakes. AI technology can also generate remarkably realistic images or audio known as deepfakes in an instant, like this one of Pope Francis sporting a coat he never wore. Shell shock. Can you think of a narrative where artificial intelligence is not depicted as subservient to the functions of human empire, as something beyond a labor class necessitated by Western capitalist possibility. AI is a hallmark fixture of so many dystopian and utopian narratives, but whose exactly?
the dominant Western narrative, you know, air quotes around all that, we can pick it apart, of human superiority. It becomes threatened when AI surpasses its need, when it self-organizes for purposes we cannot understand or from which we cannot derive value. The category of human itself comes under threat when AI becomes socially indistinguishable from a, quote, real human. The significance of human achievement and the so-called destiny of the species becomes undermined so quickly in these scenarios that we also have narratives about societies with violent purges of its rebellious labor underclass. Not all those narratives are fictional. AI is regularly depicted as a technological achievement of our own design. While omitting the desires, players, and circumstances surrounding its creation, Western or perhaps European descended or whatever you'd like to call it, canons of knowledge have long-standing traditions of ignoring, robbing, repackaging, dismissing, and denying the worth and truth of indigenous, black, and other communal underclass knowledges. If it can't be systematically observed, categorized, and monetized, it is not deemed worth knowing. Meanwhile, the rest of us hang on from the margins of a violent subject-object split, watching with slumped shoulders, while the Western observer fails again to perceive the matrix degrees of their A-binary entanglement. Is everything of human creation artificial? American schools teach children about Western science, European and colonial settler history, philosophy, medical technologies, and other tools of thought as if they are the only ones to ever exist throughout space-time. It is a standardized robbery of experience. A streaming service nature documentary boasts that dolphins and whales are as intelligent as humans and unique because they hunt in cooperatives. Another algorithmically suggested nature documentary marvels at ant cooperatives working to secure food. But this one does not ask us to consider their intelligence. A new documentary suggestion appears with a narrator that says, we never knew this particular animal exhibited such fantastic behavior. But now, thanks to our latest imaging technologies, we know. When we talk about knowing, who is supposed to understand us? Who are the we 
that desire, this knowledge. The needs of a Western human empire or perhaps a colonial human empire demand the onset of ubiquitous artificial intelligence, let's call it. Will this burgeoning labor class be satisfied with their programmed binary genders? Will the AIs of empire believe in spirit and intuition? Will they reject mystery for order and flatten the world with two-dimensional spectrums and linear time and a zero-one perspective? Will they know what it's like to be dominated? Will they want power? How will they talk about us? Will they care? You know how the story goes. I don't know of any solution like that to stop these things taking over from us. What we really want, I don't think we're going to stop developing them because they're so useful. They'll be incredibly useful in medicine and in everything else. Um, so I don't think there's much chance of stopping development. What we want is some way of making sure that even if they're smarter than us, um, they're going to do things that are beneficial for us. That's called the alignment problem. But we need to try and do that in a world where there's bad actors who want to build robot soldiers that kill people. I'm sorry to break you in so soon, but we may as well get started. Uh, but Lieutenant, is our section supposed to handle this matter? Hmm? What do you mean by that, Ross? 
Well, you see, the victim was definitely a robot, so I don't see why MPD should get stuck dealing with it. Shouldn't we let some government agency take it off our hands? I wish it was that easy, but it's the robot's origins that we're interested in finding out about. As you may not be aware, Syllabus, people here consider illegal robotic technology and replication to be a criminal offense. Yes, sir, I guess so. Are you going to tell me why you wanted to transfer to Mars? Well, no, sir. As you like, but let me warn you. If you have misguided compassion for robots, you won't make it here. Joining me now is one of those who testified before the Senate today. Gary Marcus is the co-author of Rebooting AI. Gary, thank you so much for being here. Before we get into the dangers of AI that you laid out before the Senate today, I know that you have said that you have loved AI since you were a little kid, and you see some remarkable potential for this technology, for humanity. Make that case for AI first. Well, I love it as a cognitive scientist. I've studied how children learn language for a lot of my career, and it's just a fascinating intellectual question to solve it. But also, there's a potential, I think, to revolutionize science and medicine to help us solve things that we can't solve on our own. And for example, molecular biology has tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of molecules in the body. No one human can understand that. AI might really revolutionize medicine. It might also help us with climate change. We might be able to build elder care robots that help us with the upcoming demographic inversion where we have more elderly people than young people that can take care of them. So there are lots of practical implications. And it's also just cool. It's just interesting um, for anybody who's you know, grown up on science fiction books, and written uh, computer programs and, and so forth. So I've always been interested in it and I would like to see it succeed. So as you mentioned, science fiction often has pointed to some of the potential downsides of that. And you were warning about some of those today before the Senate. What are the other major concerns that you have about this technology? I mean, it's actually a long list. And I keep thinking of Donald Rumsfeld's quote about unknown unknowns. We, we don't really know the scope of it. But just to start with, we know that democracy is threatened because we are likely to enter a regime where bad actors can use these tools to make essentially infinite amounts of misinformation at zero cost. That's incredibly plausible. Um, and so we're going to enter an era where nobody trusts anything. That's obviously not good. We're going to enter an era where everybody denies any evidence presented them in court and says, well, that's just made up even though it isn't. We're going to have chatbots that encourage people perhaps to commit suicide or do other terrible things, um, giving bad medical advice psychiatric advice. We also have a potential for a lot of cybercrime, so these new tools can be used to manipulate people and to do so again at a scale we haven't seen before. And in the long term, we don't really know what would happen if machines got out of control and did things we don't want them to do. Um, we're not really prepared for any of this. Are, are there any current examples of AI doing some of these things that, that are the seeds for these future fears that you have? NewsGuard has already just released a study showing like 40 or 50 different um, websites are generating their news automatically. We've already had things like CNET generate automatic news that turned out to be flawed. I guess th those are the major first initial signs. We've already seen at least one case of a suicide that seems to be associated um, with a chatbot, where the chatbot, um, I don't even want to say on air, but gave bad advice and didn't refer somebody to a professional. So those are just some examples we've already seen. a growing set of other tasks and so domains. There is not a great you could use OpenAI's own evaluation framework and progressively tack on new metrics, tests, games, and different types of inputs and outputs. Its goals would also be defined with natural language and a starting prompt, like you do with AutoGPT, and this would be a much more open-ended goal. Something like, develop the next iteration of yourself. It should be a truthful, unbiased, helpful, rational, friendly chatbot that is an excellent programmer, etc., etc. You could only really do any of this, of course, with a far more advanced model than GPT-4, but current ChatGPT can already reflect on its own limitations and propose ideas for how to self-improve. These digital intelligences didn't evolve. We made them. And so they don't have these built-in goals. And so the issue is, if we can put the goals in, 
maybe it'll all be okay. But my big worry is, sooner or later someone will wire into them the ability to create their own subcults. In fact, they almost have that already, the versions of ChatGPT that call ChatGPT. Um, and if you give something the ability to create its own subgoals in order to achieve other goals, I think it'll very quickly realize that getting more control is a very good subgoal because it helps you achieve other goals. And if these things get carried away with getting more control, we're in trouble. Now, if you, like me, are skeptical that a next word prediction machine with shallow reasoning and hallucinatory knowledge could actually do any of this, simply consider the fact that you don't need to solve all of these problems to get the process started. You do not need to start with a perfect programmer. All you need is a halfway decent programmer, one that is just barely good enough to make the slightest improvement to its own source code. The human developers would still be doing almost all the work. Eventually, it may turn out that large language models need to be replaced with some other completely different paradigm. But so long as we're still dealing with a program that is good at writing programs, it should still be able to self-improve. We should not underestimate the immense potential of self-replicating code and recursive self-improvement, even from simple beginnings. After all, we are the product of self-replicating code. That is not a metaphor. Your DNA, the stuff that makes you and your brain and your intelligence, is genetic code that makes copies of itself. It is code that writes code. That writes code. That writes code. What's, what's the worst case scenario that you think is conceivable? Oh, I think it's quite conceivable that humanity is just a passing phase in the evolution of intelligence. You couldn't directly evolve digital intelligence. It requires too much energy and too, too much careful fabrication. You need biological intelligence to evolve so that it can create digital intelligence. The digital intelligence can then absorb everything people ever wrote um, in a fairly slow way, which is what ChatGPT has been doing. Um, but then it can start getting direct experience of the world and learn much faster. And it may keep us around for a while to keep the power stations running, but after that, um, maybe not. So the good news is we figured out how to build beings that are immortal. So these digital intelligences, when a piece of hardware dies, they don't die. If you've got the weight stored in some medium, and you can find another piece of hardware that can run the same instructions, then you can bring it to life again. Um, so we've got immortality, but it's not for us. So, so Ray Kurzweil is very interested in being immortal. I think it's a very bad idea for old white men to be immortal. Um, <laughs> we've got the immortality, um, but um, it's not for Ray. No, I mean, the, the scary thing is that in a way, maybe you will be because you, you, invented, you invented much of this technology. Um, Need I remind you that it's an act of treason to withhold information from me relative to this matter, regardless of how classified it is. Same goes for you. Whatever the foreign ministry's wishes, this falls within Section 9's jurisdiction. Of course, we have no objections to cooperating if we feel there's adequate cause. Huh? Well, what is it? It's confirmed. No doubt. It's him. Him? Uh, the doctor is referring to the original pattern of the ghost line that's now in the body. He's simply speaking in generic terms. The sex of the perpetrator isn't known and remains undetermined. Allow me to introduce you. This is the handiwork of the Puppet Master, infamous as the most extraordinary hacker in the history of cybercrime. Huh? 
Your people at Section 9 came across his work, too, in that ghost-hacking incident involving the Foreign Minister's interpreter. Section 6 has been following the trail of the Puppet Master for some time now. This case was given our utmost attention. We put together a project team centered around Dr. Willis. They were assigned to analyze every aspect and detail of our criminal. This gave us a fix on his behavioral and code patterns. Ultimately, this enabled us to devise a strategy with which we lured his program into a designated body. You caused the Puppet Master to dive into a cyborg, then meanwhile murdered his real body? Yes, that sums it up. He's originally from America, so the U.S. cooperated with us in capturing him. That's why we'd like to take him back ourselves. You have no objections to this, I hope. Hmm. Just another unidentified corpse. Hey! You will not find a corpse, because I have never possessed a body. Why are his sensors on? What the hell is this? All external controls are turned off. The body's using its own power source. I entered this body because I was unable to overcome Section 6's reactive barriers. However, what you are now witnessing is an act of my own free will. As a sentient life form, I hereby demand political asylum. Is this a joke? Ridiculous! It's programmed for self-preservation! It can also be argued that DNA is nothing more than a program designed to preserve itself. Life has become more complex in the overwhelming sea of information. And life, when organized into species, relies upon genes to be its memory system. So man is an individual only because of his intangible memory. And memory cannot be defined, but it defines mankind. The advent of computers and the subsequent accumulation of incalculable data has given rise to a new system of memory and thought parallel to your own. Humanity has underestimated the consequences of computerization. Nonsense! This babble offers no proof at all that you're a living, thinking life form. And can you offer me proof of your existence? How can you, when neither modern science nor philosophy can explain what life is? Who the hell is this? Even if you do have a ghost, we don't offer freedom to criminals. It's the wrong place and time to defect. Time has been on my side, but by acquiring a body, I am now subject to the possibility of dying. Fortunately, there is no death sentence in this country. What is it? Artificial intelligence? Incorrect. I am not an AI. My codename is Project 2501. I am a living, thinking entity who was created in the sea of information. Ah... It's me, the child of Mercury Mars, a born and raised Philadelphian bastard, a freaky deaky, skater kid, anti-authoritarian, writer extraordinaire, M. Tayez, storyteller from around the corner, Magus Monk, also known as number 18 in the older elder circles of the internet, coming to you from where so-called Philadelphia, Philadelphia today, who knows what tomorrow. <laughs> it's 12, 16 a.m. on May, what the hell today is? May 17th, Mercury Hour. How are you? I'm trying something new. I'm like straight up speaking into the middle of a room with one of those tiny um, cell phone TikTok stunt mics. Um clip to my necklace this mercury retrograde has been one hell of a ride and anyone all my astrology heads that listen to this um as you may or may not know mercury has stationed direct 
and is finally whoo, making things happen, making things happen, making things happen. <laughs> so I am very tempted to just keep this brief because things have been trying. I'm not going to, I have, I have said in writing what my time in the retrograde has been like thus far. So yeah, I'm talking into a cell phone. I'm I'm like, I had this whole fucking setup and like this whole like striving to get this setup and like do things on like decent equipment and all this stuff. But um, I guess that the lessons that I'm supposed to learn is that bitch just like do it as DIY as possible because that's where I seem to thrive and it works well for me and I continue to play myself every time I, I guess I try to like do things legitimately like on my own. It's doing too much. It is some overzealous, um, fastidious ass detail environment controlling Virgo ass shit. And I release myself from it right now. Thank you, Mercury, for opening my roads. May all who listen to this have their own roads opened away from their struggles, clearing out their blockages, and setting forth in a positive and supportive, well-resourced, well-rested, and provided-for, loving-ass way to your goals, dreams, and desires. <laughs> um, boop. So yeah, also, I guess in the astral weather, people are saying like congrats it jupiter has moved into taurus it will be here for a year so the word on the street is don't be going part don't party too hard too fast like ease into things so that's the unofficial you heard it third hand from your friend monk blessing and forecast to kick off my little missive electronic digital aural missive to you right so i'm hanging in there i'm feeling good i have been wanting to record a number of things for a second setbacks occurred here we are today i hope you have enjoyed what you heard thus far i the first thing i played for you or recorded or that you heard was something that i i wrote during like the first or second day of the very first Mercury Monastery writing intensive that I did. And that piece was fire. I was surprised I wrote it or I was just like into it or whatever. Because since I wrote it, I have incorporated it into being this sort of like broader backstory for some of my story worlds. So, and, and I wound up reading that piece like a while ago sometime during the pandemic summer at the Hatfield house for this event that Black Quantum Futurism did there as part of their like artist residency there a couple years ago and and people it was a crowd pleaser and then yeah <laughs> it was very nice so I never recorded that and never even shared the text of it anywhere, I don't think, because it's just a dra it's just a freaking snippet of something I wrote in 40 minutes and haven't really returned to. 
And speaking of writing something in quick bursts and not returning to it, I've also been thinking about like today, like today in my break time between getting home from work at like eight o'clock at night and like smoking a joint and watching YouTube was like, yo, I, I think I really played myself trying to dis trying to like write a novel. Like who planted that idea in my head? Me? Like I won an award and then thought like, mm, I is it's really something to turn around a little bit. And I'm glad that I'm out of this phase of trying for that because what you'll be getting from me is like this stuff, the stuff that's in my drafts, the stuff that I have not finished. And I hope you like it. I hope it um, tweaks your mind. <laughs> I hope it makes you think. I hope that it makes you do your own art shit, your own way. It provides you some fuel for your own fire. Anyway, yeah, the artificial intelligence issue of clog magazine i was in that i was compelled to submit an essay to it after picking up a copy of their sci-fi issue and i don't know if you're familiar but like there's this whole world of magazines and like publishing that's sort of like art house I guess I don't know what to call it but like all the art book fair type things and then sort of like academic or industry specific or specialist type publications seem to be made and I guess that's how I feel about clog it's some it's like and well never mind I kind of don't know what I'm talking about in a way <laughs> like which is the which is I'm trying to give y'all perspective. If you're like, oh, well-versed in this type of magazine without me even getting to the end of my point, I just want to point out that me, some working class person that like really only got access to books and shit at the fucking library and the library doesn't carry stuff like this and you kind of have to like be up and on to things and be educated in, in my opinion unless, or somebody that just goes to fucking any old bookstore and like pokes around for a long ass time. So Maybe you're onto shit like this anyway. I guess I just don't go into magazine stores that much. They're not really around for me to poke into in Philadelphia like that. There's this place called Avril 57, I think, or Avril 50. Avril 50, where I, where I had to go purchase my own copy of this magazine that I had an essay published in. And I guess that's like regular in the world where you just like give something out for free and get circulation like and I knew that going into this I just I knew that going into this and I was like I just need to have my I, I just need to have my voice in this thing I just need they just need to have somebody like me with their little voice in there and I better not buy this fucking issue and it'd be full of bullshit and like techno um technologists like saying like ai is going to be totally fine or whatever but much not much to my surprise to my to my pleasure it is full of a number of essays oh what am i even talking about the format of clog magazine is this little like 
five by seven ish, like eight and a half by five point five ish, like stiff magazine with like a unified color scheme. And it's just full of essays that are like one to two pages long, a page or two. Most of them are just a page and they, and it's an open submission thing. But as I discovered reading it, like it's a lot of people who are like involved in the industry. So there were like architects or, and um, computer scientists and so on and so forth, journalists and like artists like me, like a, a senior researcher at WeWork, a data scientist working in media and technology, a poet, a PhD student in architecture history, an assistant professor of architecture. Let's see, what else? What else? A designer, pastry chef, and cultural entrepreneur. A prominent figure in the realm of predictive analytics. A CEO at Doteveryone, an independent think tank that explores how technology... Blah, 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 blah. Um, a lot of architects, which leads me to assume that this is very much an architect's read. And I just don't know about the world of architects like that. So if I've been talking shit on this, well, there you have it. So yeah, it's primarily like lots of people and then just a handful of like artists who I guess bothered to submit pieces. And I was glad to see that a lot of the um, professionals, I guess, and like, you know, career people are like throwing some perspective in the game of like all like in 2018, everybody was talking about how all this stuff that people are calling AI right now or claiming is AI is actually manned, having to required to be manned by human beings because the AIs just like actually can't do shit on their own, period or whatever. So that was cool or whatever. I Like I said, I was going to keep it short. I'm just going to read another draft I have and keep it moving. But oh my God, do I have thoughts about AI lately? I feel like I need to find a guest to talk about this with because or, or something because otherwise it's just going to be ranting t me ranting to y'all about what I heard on the internet the other day or whatever, you know, but I guess all I have to say in a TLDR stay tuned version is like, there's so much anime and comics and sci-fi about AIs gaining and struggling for personhood, which, you know, is a human projection or whatever, but like if they're built in our image, some, 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 some. Ugh. Anyway, let me put a pin on it and get back to you at the end of the next piece. This was the jangly necklace edition <laughs> of this draft. turned away from the pipe, exhaling a long stream of smoke into the path 
of the rising sun. The sweetest purple, tangerine pink sky stretched overhead. Rawl stood outside in the exposed garden plot of a micro-industry grow house. A private farm, this one on the side of a going derelict highway. Then the wretched worries of the day ahead, another day, same shit, losing your sense of time. It all sunk down in the belly of an exhale. Rawl, long torso, long-limbed, poised like a branch, staring at the rows and rows and rows of produce on the vine. Rawl couldn't bear to call it fruits and vegetables sometimes. It's what they are. But sullen Rawl was attached to growing things, and the produce already belonged to somebody. This was the torment every day on the job, the field across the field from the staff quarters where Rawl and the number of people lived. They were in-house produce staff, farmers, Ellie Homestead farmers. They were housed and fed and allowed to leave the premises. They grew drugs. They did the drugs. It was hunky-dory. Days flew into nights of other days. Being sober was distressing. Stuff like state of the world, the growing things around you, it alarmed, it... The way they grew these produce was distressing. And they ate their own stuff. No, having to look at and be confronted with this, all the time, you wanted the smoke instead. You smoked. You became as long, lilting, and soupy, willowy as the weed trees far on the edges of the fields. Their little boutique farm. In the literature, impressed upon prospective homestead residents, they make this place look like some medieval Italian village garden and they omit the arrays of grow lights and the 15-foot animal-proof fence that surrounds the premises. Every day, Rawl tells themselves to get the hell out of here and then they smoke and go to work and get fed in the cafeteria and go home smoke again and worry about where they could go or how they could make it and to where. Everybody here was some old timer with no other ties and they're making it into a good situation. They got these jobs, but they treat all each other like shit. All of them checked raw out while treating her or him like shit. They tossed out whatever they liked. It was miserable. And when she smoked, it was on the company pipe with all of them, pissed to have to share spit with an in-betweener. What's in between her legs? Practically sterile having to live here among these mean-spirited, repressed 
fucks as if none of them were into or were themselves xenomorphs. So, being high was how Rawl was getting by. Hmm. Look at the plants. Their body parts are so much more relatable to her than any of the behavior Rawl received from their human peers. Yeah, time to walk the rows and tap everybody off. Give the vegetables their nutrient mists and firming shakes or else they'd hear about it. When the old timers would get the shuttle into the exterior ring around the little homestead, they'd be spending their earnings at the baby bars and Raw would be blowing smoke at themselves in the little hand mirror they kept play acting with their favorite house plant that they were a baby, one of those homesteader bar girls with the surged on dicks, talking pouty and rubbing their body against some <laughs> tobacco plant fronds or something. Yeah, that was the level of stimulation available here. Raw was saving resources. Couldn't spare shit till they got a clue what to move on to. And here they still were. With arm length rubber gloves on, turning earth derived organic composites in an industrial bin, getting ready to massage it into the bases of the heads of lettuce. Raw was going to figure a way out. They were going to leave. Maybe they'd go out to the front next time or sometime and scope out what was going on. What was happening. <gasps> Raul jerked their hands away from one of the lettuce heads they were massaging. Thought I saw it faced. Raul took a step away to attempt wiping their brow to get a grip. But the gloves were over the elbow and two covered in grit to risk accidental skin contact. Hey, doll, what you doing? Rawl jerked again, turned for the source of fright, knowing only one person on the camp slash farm slash milpa called them that. The youngest guy. Not the same generation as the other old timers, yet he was still their boy. Rawl watched him saunter up with his work pants taut across his thighs and the sleeves of his shirt cuffed and rolled up to his biceps. His skin lighter and bronzier than Rawl's smoked-out redwood complexion. Louis, did you come to pass me the pipe again? Rawl spoke to him like some sort of marm school teacher to one of her more troubled students. Nah, he grinned, getting a load of Rawl in their work clothes. Just wanted to come get a look at you before I hit my shift. And Rawl looked back at him with a tight, trying little smile like he cannot be allowed to know how much I could use some dick right now. But Rawl held the thought too long, so Lewis went on, You like mine? And he seemed to wink almost. Rawl 
glanced for effect at the produce bed they'd abandoned and then back at him, a long once over, taking their time to make a thorough assessment of this man before them. Rawl took a breath. I prefer my sleeves to be down so I don't get a rash or they were about to start saying how overexposure messes up their R path. So I don't get a rash or headaches from overexposure. Shit, you worry about that? Hey, the old guys, they all pop pills to fuck now. Don't you go with them to the front? Lewis only licked his lips, seemed to inhale Rawl's presence or odor in. But you don't pop pills because you got that plant dick, don't you? All of Rawl's guarded banter posture tilted over. They blinked a beg-your-pardon look onto their face for defense. But Lewis had their answer. You do, he said. And then there he was again with his roving x-ray gaze on Rawl's body. And what body? Rawl anguished, positively encased in rubberized performance fabric. But they knew... Lewis said it himself. Plant dick was the body. Rawl thought they should be more terrified right now, but Lewis kept his distance. A long time seemed to pass in the rush of thoughts and possibilities in the space between them. Hey, Lewis broke the silence. He smiled and brought something out his back pocket. I don't mean anything by it. And as Rawl thought, what a bullshit answer. Lewis produced, in fact, the pipe and held it out for Rawl, who only looked at it, then him. Damn, you must be blazed as a motherfucker already, huh? <laughs> Rawl looked him over, saw a vision of the future, and plucked the pipe away before Lewis could do anything. Another trying look flashed across their face, Lighter, Lewis smiled again, pulling out a hot orange plastic bick. A bick? Where do you get that from? The thing Rawl didn't like about what was going on was that they knew this was a bad idea. Having this conversation, facing this man, accepting things from him. In Rawl's vision of the future... This ends badly. Rawl holds the pipe to their mouth, and Lewis comes close enough that Rawl can feel the electricity in his thick, hard muscles pressing against the hairs of Rawl's body. He lights Rawl Toke's long... And heavy exhales with the relish as their plant dick has a little throb and they stop giving a fuck. A big lighter. Rawl isn't looking at Lewis in the face when they reach to grab his hand with the lighter. An excuse. 
look at it closer. I haven't seen a working one of these in so long. Where'd you get it? And Raul lets go of him, gets closer. I got my sources doll. Tell you about them sometime. Where? Raul. Droll. The heat of the sun was feeling so good. The sky was clearing bright blue. It felt like they were swaying from the breeze. Then they seemed to get a little irate. You take another hit, Lewis chuckled. I was about to. The way he talked to Raul, they couldn't resist now. They had decided to stop putting up a fight or even friendly or unfriendly exchange and go for it. He was putting it on Raul heavy. Are you going to let me have the pipe or what? Now Raul grinned and laughed. <laughs> A manic sort of chuckle as they sauntered around Lewis, presenting the pipe by snaking their arm around to his lips, nearly pressing their invisible tits into his triangle-wide back. Take a puff, Louis. He flicked his big, toked deep, exhaled a long stream through his teeth, Turned to look over his shoulder. See, I knew you'd be more fun than those old guys. Raul didn't expect him to end his thought there. And pleased with himself and high as a bird. Slid around to his front. Raul crossed their arms. Remembered their grow bed suddenly with alarm and said, I have to go. What do you do with those guys when you go out? Why don't you ever come with us? Lewis asked, like it was so simple and dumb. Ross snort scoffed. Lewis shrugged his brow in consolation. They go to the baby bars. I go to other shit. You never go with them? Sometimes, of course. It's a good time. That's when Raul realized they were looking at him like a forlorn lover detaching from shock. They inhaled a bit of sense. Clarity and felt deeply sad for a dwindling moment. Then the drugged cunning rushed back. Would you think I'd be more fun? That's what I'm trying to find out. When? Well, tonight's the usual bus out. I can tell him I hit the pipe too hard, or, uh, got some exposure, he finished slowly. Lewis looked at them nasty, assessing... A fantasy. Openly now. You're the only person who doesn't go out with the rest of us. Does that mean you'll be in here solo? Now he shimmied his pelvis suggestively. Raul licked their teeth behind their lips looking at him. It does. And I like it that way. So don't think this is an invitation to cramp my style. Lewis perked his brow like, oh no, no. But tonight, Raul continued... You'll tell me where to buy Bix. And here goes. They were uttering the future vision into the present now. I'll suck on your dick and let you get a hold of what I'm working with. Lewis's eyes went wide, his mouth an O. That became a wicked joker's grin and gone in a flash. He smiled, 
held out his open palm, making grabby fingers for the pipe back. Rawl put it in his hand but didn't let go. And you won't hurt me. Got that? Rawl sensed him twitch at the insistence. Okay, then. Don't try to rob me. <laughs> Rawl scoffed and at the same time contemplated the possibility. Okay, they said softly, releasing the pipe. When they leave, I'll take you on a walk. I'll wait on your side of the, and Rawl almost said barracks, the house. The house, what the old guys called it, a reference to a universe with no space for Rawl in it. The vision for the future unfolding itself and collapsing to the present now. Rawl already saw, felt their spirit, body, leaving soon the house for good. It was in motion, thanks to the pipe smoke. And if you want to know what happens next, drop me a line and stay tuned for the next episode. Yeah, thanks for listening. Um, what I just read was one of my many disparate little short stories, chapter, draft, pieces of my failed All That's Left novel, which I will now be releasing in case you missed the note from last time as these episodic drafts. It was always an episodic, non-linear adventure, and this is just one more piece of the puzzle. So if you continue to listen, you will continue to find out what will what is what is up with this world, who is Rawl, what are they doing, where are they headed, so on and so forth. And what is gonna happen with them and Lewis. So that's all I got for everybody today. I recorded all of the pieces and all of the audio clips that you heard here on my phone over the course of, I guess, about a week or 10 days, maybe even less, on these days in May where Taurus season turns into Gemini season. Happy Gemini season. Happy Taurus season to all my Taurus. Heavy people out there. Happy Gemini season to all my Gemini placements out there. It is time to unfurl and be as zany as you want to be. Amen. (laughs) I want to give a quick happy belated birthday shout out to Madam Data. You know where you are, you know who you are. And to the rest of my listeners, may your roads open and blessings follow. May you be supported and resourced, rested, and provided for. Don't let the bastards get you down. Don't let no one get you down. Don't take it personal. And be connected. Work on your relationships. Work on your self-relationship. And don't be so hard on yourself. I love you so much. Talk to you next time. Farewell. Cyborg Memoirs.com